Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, let me just uh, start with a with a story. Something that happened to me over Shabbos. I actually just uh, wrote this this uh, article um, about coincidences, the meaning of coincidences. You can check that out if you're interested. Uh, they put on ish.com or it's on my website on Torah and iTunes. Just what to do when coincidences happen. Anyway, so having just more or less published that 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 piece, I was. Um, I was I was giving a, a, a little talk uh, before we started um, uh, service at, at the Happy Minion on Shabbos, and and I was actually leaving to go to uh, to a bar mitzvah to a, at, at another shul. So um, so uh, as I was as I was leaving the Happy Minion on the way to the this second shul, as I walked out of the Happy Minion, there was the the whole family of the simcha that I was going to, to the, you know, to the, the bar mitzvah family, so to speak, was like just kind of walking on their way to shul, and they were right outside as I was walking out of shul. And so that was sort of nice to sort of like be on the, you know, the, the simcha train, you know. So it's like, and they were all wearing um, this sort of uh, yarmulke that they had made for the occasion. You know, they, sometimes people will do that as just part of a celebration, they'll put out their own uh, brand of yarmulke, so with their own design on it. So so they were all wearing it, so it was very striking because it was this group of people all with this very unique looking yarmulke like walking down the, walking down Pico. Um, anyway, so I came out right at that moment and they, 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 they knew that I was coming to join them. So one of them said, here, and handed me one of the yarmulkes, you know. So, uh, so I was like, okay, great. So I thanked them, and I, I took it. And then they sort of walked ahead, and I was walking with someone, and um, we continued to walk. And you know, I was holding it for about a, a block and a half or something like that. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, I should I should put this on. So there was like a little table outside this store. So I thought, okay, well that's a that's a good spot to stop. So I stopped there. I took off took off my yarmulke. I put the other one on the table and I put this one on and at that moment someone comes up to me like the street the sidewalk is more or less empty someone comes up to me uh, a boy of I guess he's 14 15 and says to me uh, he's all dressed for sure you know and he says to me does anyone have an extra yarmulke I I uh, I forgot mine <laughs> and I was like yeah, so I just picked up my yarmulke, the one that I had been wearing, and just handed it to him, and he was like, thanks! <laughs> and it was like, just this amazing moment, you know, like, like, I don't know, just this crazy thing, like, you know, normally speaking, people don't walk down the street with a, a spare yarmulke, just in case they're in a hurricane or something, you know, <laughs> so it was just, uh, and just the timing of it was just, it was wild, you know, so anyway, uh, the kind of the premise of the piece that I wrote, the meaning of coincidences, or at least my my take at it, uh, and and you can read it. I, I won't go through all the steps of it, but but but, but basically the idea is like this: that um, that uh, I had heard one time that that coincidences are are God's way of sort of waving hello to you, if you will, um, and so. I heard that and I liked that, but I thought about it some more and I thought, well, wait a second, God is sort of waving hello to you at every single moment. 
So if that's the case, then what's a coincidence? Because experientially, we know that a coincidence is, is more than that even. So then therefore, what is that? You know, it's got to be more than just God waving hello to you, because if you're sensitive, you know that's always going on. So I thought about it some more, and, and there's, a, uh, there's a Mishnah in Perkei Avos where Rabbi Akiva says that, um, that beloved are human beings, but they're even more beloved because God makes it known to them that they're beloved. And how so? And they quote a, uh, a verse from the Torah which says essentially, beloved are human beings, <laughs> you know? So, so, and it goes on in this way saying, um, saying similar types of thoughts, but what Rabbi Kiva is bringing out here is something very amazing, which is this, this concept that, um, that something can be true but there's an even higher level if it's made known to you that it's true, right? So like I, I sort of imagine a conversation between a child and a parent where the child says, you know, to the parent, do you love me? And the parent says, of course I love you. And the child says, well, then how come you never tell me? Right? So it's, there's, there, there's one thing that can, it can be true, but it's a, it's a higher level when something is made known that it's true. Right? So I thought that that's what's going on with coincidences. That when a coincidence happens, it's, it's a moment where God reveals to you how close that he is. In other words, yes, God is always close, but it's not every day or every moment where God, so to speak, goes out of his way to reveal to you how close he is. So then I thought to myself, okay, well then what's the next step beyond that, right? So then what are you supposed to do? So that if God is, so to speak, going out of his way to reveal to you how close he is, then that's, that, that's called an esratzon, which means a time of favor, which means the gates are open to prayer. So if a coincidence happens to you, that means the gates are open. That means that you should pray, right? So, so I think that's, that's, that's my recommendation in, anyway. If you experience a coincidence, appreciate the revelation of God's telling you how close he is and use that as an opportunity to pray. And of course, like we always say, person, they're like, for me, I, you know, you can make up your own categories, but for me, there are like five categories that a person should always have in mind and have lists of people in each one of these categories so that at any moment that they feel that the gates are open, they can really sort of pray to God on, on behalf of essentially the world, their friends, their community, themselves. And these categories are health. You know, there are a lot of people who need healing. Um, Parnosa, livelihood. There are a lot of people who need jobs, cash. Um, Shaduchim, marriage partners. People need husbands and wives. Children, people are davening for children. Um, and also Mashiach, you know, the fixing of the whole world. You know, so, so in, in these categories, you can... Like you experience something like that, then you just, you dive in, you know? So, so, so anyway, that's, that's a, may, maybe an introduction to, to um, what I want to speak about today, which is Parshas Lech Lecha. And Lech Lecha is, is just this, this enormous turning point in the entire Torah. Um, because it's the introduction of Abraham Avinu, Abraham, our father, and Sarah, our mother, onto the scene. So this is, this is huge, because this is really the beginning, formally speaking, this is the beginning of Judaism. 
and, um, and the restoration of monotheism. See, a lot of people mistakenly um, uh, attribute to Abraham the, the um, discovery or the discovery of monotheism, of, of one God. Um, and that's true on some level, but, but keep in mind that from Adam, from the time of Adam and Chava, the, the oneness of God was known. What happened was that it was buried over and it was lost. And people just saw all these go-betweens. They, they saw, saw the whole chain of creation. And the way, um, the way the rabbis explain it, this sort of descent into paganism or polytheism, that basically there was sort of like an a understandable logic behind it. And the example that they give, which is a very clear idea, is that a king doesn't just walk down um, a, a public road. He's first, um, he's first preceded by his ministers. So that's, that's sort of a, if you think about it, that's like a very covetic, it's a very honorable way to conduct yourself. You have your ministers who precede you, and then it builds up to the king. And so, and of course, the ministers themselves are worthy of honor, but not worthy of honor like the king is worthy of honor. And so as people looked around nature, they saw rain, which made crops grow as an emissary of God, as a minister preceding God, if you will. They saw the sun as a minister of God preceding God, right, to make things grow and and to keep everything moving. And they saw all the forces of nature as these ministers preceding God who were also you know, worthy since God was using them as conduits, right? But then, so they said, well, these things are worthy of praise as well. But then their focus became shifted, and over the course of time, they began to attribute power to them, you see? And it's also this idea that, well, I know this sounds like a little bit primitive, what I'm going to say, but but it, it th- this... This instinct, what I'm about to tell you, creeps in over time and then it becomes a real thing, which is that if I'm in good with the sun, then, so to speak, I can cut a side deal, (laughs) right? Now, that kind of works in business where if you can sort of cut a side deal with the middleman, right? And, And humanly speaking, in terms of human business interactions, that actually does work. So then there are certain different um, reasons why you then project your human relationships onto the cosmos, right? People are doing that all the time. And now what's born is an entirely corrupt system of paganism, where all of a sudden the idea that these are just sort of like, you know, conduits, um, where God is sort of like putting his energy and his blessing into the world, and you're attributing them with power, and you're developing separate relationships with them. So, so Abraham Avinu, the greatness of Abraham, was that he came into a world where this had become the system. This was the system. And then he came and he destroyed all of this and restored the original concept, which was known, which was known, didn't come from him originally, but was known, which is just the complete oneness of God, that there is no power other than God. Now, I'll tell you something interesting, um, which is, you know, one of the primary um, sources of idol worship was the sun itself. 
um, as you know, uh, like for instance, the Egyptians, they like had a big, you know, cult of sun worshippers, and and you you have it in 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 different, um, you know, different civilizations throughout time, and um, in the Beis Hamikdash, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, we had regular offerings. It was called the Korban Tamid, and what that means is is that there was an offering. It was the same offering, and it was brought every morning and every afternoon, every day. The big thing, the Korban Tamid was a very big day, a very big thing. And in fact, we mark as one of the reasons why we fast, I believe it's on the 17th of Tammuz, if I'm not mistaken, one of the reasons why we fast that day is because the Korban Tamid stopped. So it's like even an occasion to this day that we fast, that that stopped, okay? So, um, so anyway, how did we do it? Um, so when you think of the altar, the Mizbeach, um, in the Holy Temple, I don't know what you're picturing in your mind. You know, you might p- picture like a barbecue of some sort, you know, like, like just sort of like a, you have like a grill of some sort, right? But it was actually fairly massive. It was massive, you know? So now you have to situate yourself in front of the Mizbeach and you know, and this is, you know, of course, a very Jewish way of thinking. You've got your, you've got your offering. So what question would a Jew ask in a situation like this? Well, I've got this massive altar. Where should I put it on the altar, right? Should I put it in the middle, maybe in the upper right corner, maybe in the lower left? You know what I mean? Like, like everything is, is an occasion for for how to connect in the deepest, most special way, right? So I just love that because it's sort of like it puts you inside the head of someone who's about to bring the Korban Tamid. Now, before we give you an answer of where they situated it on the altar, which is, you know, to me, fascinating, let's just take one more moment to appreciate the greatness of the Korban Tamid. Besides that, we fast to this day over its absence. The Gomorrah has a discussion at one point, which is, what is the most important verse, the most important Pasuk in the entire Torah? Right? So, one opinion is, Shema Yisrael, Shem Elokeinu, Shem The declaration of the oneness of God, and really, you know, with that one verse, you can more or less fit all of Judaism into that, right? So that's a strong contender, for sure. But the winner, surprisingly, the winner, surprisingly, is you should bring and offering every morning and every afternoon, the Korban Tamid. That verse is the one that wins. And the reason is because of the, the, the huge importance, the huge premium that's put on consistency in your service to God. Consistency to your service to God carries the day and becomes the most important passage in the entire Torah. That's, that's very important. Okay. So now listen to this. Where did they put the Korban Tamid in the morning? So they put it opposite where the sun was shining. Okay? And where did they put it in the afternoon? Remember, the Mizbeach was very large. The altar was very large. Opposite where the sun was shining in the afternoon. Now the Me'iri explains that the reason why we were putting it opposite the sun was to show that there is no such thing as the natural order in the world. 
because the sun represents, the sun goes up and the sun goes down. Seems like it's its own system altogether. The sun really is sort of like, like just like the, the lion, so to speak, is the king of the animals, right? The sun is, so to speak, the king of nature, right? And here, the Korban Tamid, which represents Hashem, right, is putting opposite the sun to show that there is no such thing as nature. There is no natural order. There is no power to the sun. There is no power to nature. That it's all God and it's only God. And we do it like in, we pinpoint it where it is in the morning and we pinpoint where that power is in the afternoon. And if you think about it, I mean, I'm just adding this thought right now, but you see, human beings have to constantly recalibrate their understanding of God. Right? You know, how you understand God, you see, the, you know, one of the biggest problems in the world, and this is not my observation, one of the biggest problems in the world is that people think about God at some point in their life, usually when they're children, and they're usually surrounded by people who, you know, I'm talking about the world at large, and maybe who aren't able to inculcate in them the depth of what's going on or the sweetness of what's going on, it becomes more or less discredited in their mind or they have, even if it's not discredited, they have a very juvenile, you know, superficial understanding of what it is and then they never think about it again. (laughs) They never probe and re-explore and break it down and apply it to their current level of intelligence and sophistication again. Right? And if you think about it, it's like one's understanding of this is only the most important decision they're ever going to make in their entire life. Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine? Like, you you cast your vote on something which is going to affect your eternal soul, right? Your 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 eternal life. You give it some thought when you're five, and then that's it. It's crazy. It's crazy. So think about it. Where the sun is shining in the morning, you put it opposite there, but the sun is shining in a different place in the afternoon. In the same day, in the same day, forget about two years later, three years later, right? Ten years later, forget about that. The same afternoon, the same day, hours later, you already have to recalibrate. Are you attributing power to the forces of nature that really belong to God? Right? And then you put it there. Okay, so now let's let's continue on with uh, with the discussion of Abraham Avinu, with Abraham and his greatness and his centrality, his centrality. You know, so so you see, we talked about it last week. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to the talk last week, or, or by the way, the week before, I really recommend those two talks. First one was, um, I called it uh, Adam and Eve, What Went Wrong? The second one, on Noah, um, Creator and Destroyer of Worlds. Those two talks, and because we're going to continue to build on those two things today. Okay, so we know that... Um, the Medrash teaches that God created and destroyed many worlds before he created this one. And 
In fact, um, when the Tiferes Yisrael, who was one of the, the, the greatest rabbis of the 1800s, at the time when they discovered dinosaur bones, right, for the first time, they, they came to him with the news about it, and he was so happy. And the reason why he was so happy was because he said, you know, our, our Torah teaches that God created and destroyed many worlds before this one, and finally we have physical evidence of it. So, so we set about a premise, and I, I won't go into it. If you, if you want to get more in-depth in it, it's, 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 it's in last week's talk, Creator and Destroyer of Worlds. We set about a, a, a premise, um, and a new idea perhaps, which is that you know the world that we live in right now is really the post-flood world. Meaning to say that after the flood, nature itself sort of was reconfigured. And this, this world that we think of as the world that we live in is not really the world of Breshis, like the beginning, let there be light, and the Garden of Eden, and everything like that. It's a different, it's a, it's a different order. It's a different arrangement of nature. That's the post-flood world. So I sort of asked the question, perhaps, perhaps, this is the world that God intended to create all along. And the whole Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve scenario was actually the last world that God destroyed before creating this world. And that God included that chapter of the creation of this world, the last destroyed world, to give us a context as to what it is we're supposed to be doing and what we're supposed to be aiming toward. Because if we were just sort of like put into this world of like hardened, crustified nature with tons of veils separating our perception of godliness and the oneness of God, it may not even occur to us the thoughts that this world is actually, you know, has perfection implanted within it and that we have to strive to get back to. And that human beings are actually these creatures of light, elevated, you know, creations. We wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to us. But it's included in the Torah to tell us what we're supposed to do with our lives and what we're supposed to do with this world. So I want to build on this thought, and there's a lot more information um, in terms of that, if, again, if you want to listen to the other one. But I want to continue to build with that, because, again, God, in the first Parsha of the Torah, God creates the world. Breshis, right? Barai Elohim, with beginnings, not in the beginning, that's King James, right? With beginnings, that's Rabbi Shemin Bar Yochai, with beginnings, God created the world, meaning to say God created the world out of the fabric of beginnings, meaning to say that the fabric of reality is actually composed of a constant, ongoing series of beginnings, and that any moment is actually ripe to pivot and start again, because the world is literally made out of beginnings. So God creates the world in the first Parsha of the Torah, Breshis. He destroys it in the second Parsha of the week, Noach, and I'd like to suggest that he creates it again, that he creates it again in the third parsha of the Torah, Lech Lecha, that this is a new creation, a new beginning with the arrival of Avraham Avinu and Sarah, 
right? Abraham and Sarah. And, you know, one of the things to just kind of keep in mind, if you want to have an appreciation of who the Jewish people are, or what a Jew is, is a point that can be skipped over very easily, but it's sort of a very central thought, okay? And that's that the the first naturally born Jew, which was Yitzchak, which means laughter, right? And remember, what is laughter in terms of just like the dynamics of humor, right? Laughter means you're surprised by something. That's why you laugh. You think it's going one way, and then it goes another way. That's why you laugh. Anyone will tell you that, right? So, so they thought their life was going one way, right? Sarah's 90 years old. She's never had a baby. It says she didn't have a womb. It's not like there was complications. There was no womb, okay? Let's just understand like the, the enormity of the miracle here. She's 90 years old. Avraham Avinu is 99 years old, right? And a child is born to them. Yitzchak, which means laughter, which is talking about just like surprising and stunning reversals. But what you see here is that the entire foundation of the Jewish people is built on a miracle. That, that, we're, that our platform, our baseline of existence is the miraculous. And that's, that's, that's very important to understand because, you know, as I heard Rabbi Manus Friedman put it one time, anti-Semites come to Jews, Jew haters come to Jews, and they look at Jews and they go, you don't belong here. And according to his analysis, which is actually very interesting if you think of it in this way, they're right. Like they, they sense a violation of the laws of nature. And, and that's what they're saying when they say you don't belong here. It's like, what is this miraculous level doing within the order of nature? And they're reacting instinctively toward that. So th- there's something there not to justify or, you know, commend their hatred. Obviously not. But, but nonetheless, there's an insight there which is actually coming from an authentic place, which is that we are this sort of ongoing miracle. And by the way, the Belzer Rebbe, I heard from Reb Shlomo, the Belzer Rebbe said that before World War II, he said, before World War II, I knew the existence of the Jewish people as a nation was miraculous, but the existence of every single individual Jew, I wasn't so sure. He says, after World War II, it's clear to me that the existence of every single Jew is a separate miracle. Right? So now, we have this new recreation. God destroys the world, creates the world, rather, in Breshis. Destroys it in Noah. And now recreates it again with Abraham Avinu. Now, one of the stunning aspects of this, because Abraham Avinu now is coming to justify the entire creation of the world. Because he's going to restore the God consciousness, the truth of the world. Now with this in mind, and we're going to kind of go back and forth a little bit, but I just want to 
tell you how primary the soul of Avraham Avinu is, just so that you understand his centrality. And it will give you just a little more context for, for what we're going to talk about. And this is in, on, on page 10 in, uh, in the Art Scroll Chumash, um, in the Stone Chumash. Um, and if you, if you look, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's chapter 2, verse 4. This is one of the great verses in the whole Torah, um, for a few reasons. But you'll see, here, I'll read it in English first. This is actually, just to give you context, uh, we've just completed the account of the seven days of creation. All right? So the world has been created. And now it's the very, very, very first thing that happens. The very first thing after the description of the seven days of creation, we have this Pasuk, and then you won't be able to tell what's special about it from the English, but let me just read it to you from the English. So it sounds like a summary. These are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created on the day that Hashem God made earth and heaven. Okay? So that's, that's the English translation. But what's really amazing about that is that verse contains the very, very first mention of the Yudke Vavke, the name of Hashem, the highest, holiest name of Hashem, which is a very wild piece of information for the reason that we've had a lot of pages of the Torah so far. And this is the holiest, highest name of God and it's appearing for the first time, like, as soon as it can after the physical universe has been created, as soon as the, we finish the physical creation of the, of, the, of the universe, now the very first opportunity after that, we've got the, the Yudke Vavke. All right? And there are very many deep explanations why it's happening there. I don't know if we'll get to it right now. But let's just at least mark the fact that that's the first appearance of it. Now, before you have the first appearance of it, you have something else, super dramatic. You have, now remember, this is, this is a word that's happening before the first mention of the Yud Vavke, but within the same verse, you have this word, Behibaram. And you see, it's, Behibaram is spelled with a small hay. That in itself, there's like, you know, probably hundreds of Torahs written explanations about that small hay. But the Zohar says something very amazing about this word Bihibaram, which is that if you rearrange the letters of it, it spells B-Avraham. And so, so the Zohar explains, bless you, the Zohar explains that for the purpose of Avraham, the entire world was created. So here you see a reference to Avraham Avinu before Right? As soon as the physical, as soon as the physical universe is created, Hashem is already telling us about Avraham Avinu. Okay? Now I'd like to add to it and and just try to give an explanation of the juxtaposition between the fact that we have a reference to Avraham Avinu and then a few words later, the first mention of the Yudke Vavke, the holiest name of God, right? And so I'd like to explain it in the following way. You see, the Katskarebi, and remember, just so you have the larger question in mind before we go into the explanation, God creates the world in Breshis, destroys it in Noah, and recreates it again 
in Lech Lecha with Avraham Avina, who we now see was actually going back the purpose of creation. In fact, that was so known to the rabbis that they asked the following amazing, amazing question. Why didn't God put Avraham and Sarah in the Garden of Eden? Right? Like, like remember, Avraham, uh, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, are created a few hours before Shabbos on the sixth day. And we say that had they not eaten from the tree of knowledge, and by the way, they were going to have permission to eat from the tree of knowledge, but just later, okay? Had they not eaten from the tree of knowledge and not violated the will of Hashem and gotten into Shabbos that way, that would have been the completion of the entire world. That would have been Mashiach. So you can imagine they're born on the one yard line of Mashiach. Right? You want to put your best people in there. Right? Like, this is it. Put Abraham and Sarah in there. That's who you want to put. That's, that's the team. So, you know, so the, the rabbis discuss it, and it's a whole thing in itself. I, I can't give you the, the full discussion of it. But one of the things that's raised is, what if Abraham hadn't passed? Right? Then the whole world would have fallen apart completely. Like, that's a chilling thought, because... See, a lot of people do Abraham, Adam and Chava a terrible disservice, which is by underestimating how grueling a test it actually was. When the serpent, remember, the serpent is like, that was the essence, the raw essence of opposition. I mean, brand spanking new, right? There it was, like, like just bam. And it was, it was not a small test. It was a, a crushingly large test, you know? you know? But also keep in mind, remember, had they not listened to the snake, that would have been Mashiach, right? Now, do you know that the word um, Nachash, which is Hebrew for snake, that's what the, the word the Torah uses, do you know that Nachash is the same gematria, the same numerical equivalent as Mashiach? I mean, is that a mind blower? It just tells you that the raw energy was right there. It just had to be channeled properly and shaped properly. But it didn't, that didn't happen. It just steamrolled over us, right? So, so anyway, so, so, Abraham, so Abraham and Sarah actually are coming to fix the souls of Adam and Eve. And, and the Medr says it very clearly that when Abraham came to bury Sarah, his wife, in the cave, the cave of the patriarchs in, in Hebron, right? Which the Zohar says is the entrance to the Garden of Eden, right? Where heaven and earth kiss. That when he went to bury Sarah, that Eve got out of her grave, climbed out of her grave, and said, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. And I don't, how can Sarah be like buried next to me, right? Like it's, and, and, and Avraham says, reassures her and says, don't worry, we're fixing it. Like we're coming to fix it. Can you imagine? So Avraham and Sarah are coming to fix Adam and Eve, you know? Um, 
So, so, so let's get back to it. So, so we have, we have this again, this idea that God creates the world with Breshis, destroys it with Noah, and recreates it with Avraham and Sarah. And, and what, we're, we're, what we're trying to figure out right now is how this verse, the first verse after the creation of the world, begins with a reference to Avraham Avinu, or rather, it, 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 it's, it's actually a few words in, and then after Avraham Avinu, we have the first mention of Hashem Yudke Vavke, right? Like the greatest name of Hashem. So what is the juxtaposition? Like if you asked me, like, like who goes first, right? Hashem goes first. Like you're going to have the first mention of the Yudke Vavke in the whole Torah? Like that's got to be first. And don't put it in the middle of the verse either. Put a first word of the verse, you know? And then you want to mention Abraham? Okay, you can mention Abraham. But what is this idea of this order that first you have Abraham, Behibaram, and then afterwards Hashem? Okay. So the Kutzka Rebbe explains like this. He asks a question. And to me, this is, you know, you talk about a Kash Torah, right? Everybody knows Rabbi Shlomo would talk about Kash Torahs. That's a, a teaching that you have to have in your pocket at all times. Right, because you've got to know it so well, you can pull it out of your pocket at any moment. Right, so, so the Kutzker Rebbe asks, "Where is God?" So you would you would say, "Okay, so everywhere." Right, like that's got to be the answer he's looking for. Everywhere. So he goes, "No, God is where you make a place for Him. See, God is where you reveal Him. And think about the depth of that." That's, 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 that is a, a life-changing Torah, if you understand the implications of it. Because you see, God is everywhere. But God can be everywhere, and yet I can use my free choice, my human agency, if you will, to stab people in the back, to cheat at business, right? To speak lush and horror, to slander other people, right? So if I can do that, God can be absolutely everywhere, and on some level, so what? If he's everywhere, if I'm using the power that he gives me to subvert his presence and to undermine his world. So God is where you make a place for him. Aha. Uh-huh. So then with that in mind, now let's put everything together that we've been talking about up until now. You see that the human being, you see that the Abraham of Venu is now the last gateway before the oneness of God is revealed. You see, it's not nature. It's not nature. Like you could say, oh man, I walked into a field and it was like so beautiful and everything like that. And I saw the oneness of God, right? Okay. But that's not the last gateway of the revelation of God. The last gateway is the human being who recognizes the oneness of God in the world. See, I'll tell you, uh, tell you in a slightly different way. I don't remember which Lubavitcher Rebbe's were involved in this story, but it was something like the Alter Rebbe's son, or maybe it was the Tzedek and his son. Whatever it was, it was a, a, one of the current first Rebbe's of Lubavitch, and his son was then going to become a future Rebbe. Okay? So, 
So the son and the father are there and they're in a beautiful field. And the son is talking about the, the majesty of the field. And while he's talking about it, he's breaking a branch off a tree, just carelessly. And the father says back to him that from this you see why human beings have the status of muad. Now muad is a Talmudic concept. We have the concept of a goring ox. What is that? It's like a kind of a runaway ox that just kind of stabs things with his horns. Like he'll, he can break apart a, a house, right, or a fence, or God forbid he can kill a person. And if he does it three times in a row in an ordered way, and there's a whole discussion in the Gomorrah, what constitutes what we call a chazaka, where it's done so that you say, okay, that's not just a coincidence or a mistake, that's actually his nature. Like, how does he actually get the status of muad, which means goring or dangerous, right? But once he gets that status, then he's kind of like, you know, you got to get rid of him, basically, because he's a danger to the community, okay? So that's, that's called a shur muad, a, a goring ox, muad being the key thing, dangerous, right? Human beings have the status of muad all of the time. Isn't that interesting? And that's what the Lubavitcher Rebbe was telling his son. Look at you, you're standing here talking about the beauty of the field while you're just breaking off this branch like carelessly for no reason. You're like this goring ox. You're like this damaging thing where even as you're appreciating, you're destroying. Because that's just part of human beings' makeup. And we've got to deal with that and elevate it, right? But the point is, is that the last gateway before the revelation of godliness is the human being. Because the human being then recognizes the oneness of God. What's the whole idea of Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah, we're saying, we're, we're, we're celebrating the creation of the universe, that God created the universe. But, but it's all contingent on us making God king. In other words, it has to filter through the consciousness of the last gate, which is the human being. And then after it does that, we then say God is king, and then God is king. Was God king beforehand? God was king beforehand. Is God more king now? Is this his plan? This was his plan. So now we see the juxtaposition between Abraham Avinu coming and then followed by God. Because the whole idea, like the Kutzker Rebbe, is for the human being to make a place for God. And that's the highest. So the final chapter now that we see in the creation of the world it goes from, again, Breshis, it's created. Noach, it's destroyed, right? But that consciousness has been lost because paganism has filled the entire world. Now we got Abraham again, who is the consciousness that was sort of, should have been there maybe even from the Garden of Eden, but it's at least mentioned as soon as the physical universe is, is created with this word, Behibaram, but Abraham, the sake of the world, because that's the tzaddik. That's the elevated, expanded consciousness of the human being who recognizes the oneness of God and brings it into the world. Okay. Now, I want to show you how, how this is mirrored on a macro sense. Because we're talking about it, how, how it filters down. It filters down within individuals. And, and just before we get to the, this, this, this macro idea, 
Let me just um, just take a a moment here. Just take a moment to um, to go back to Breshis for a moment, and um, again, if you if you sort of keep your 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 finger on on page ten, and and then turn to page two, right to Breshis to the beginning, and we're just gonna just gonna show something, um, which shows how this is being played out on a larger scale, okay. Uh, so, so you see the first three words of the Torah, Breshis bara Elohim. In the beginning, or with beginnings, much deeper, much better, with beginnings, God created. And it goes on, the heavens and the earth. But let's just focus on these first three words for a moment. And if you want to pull out a, a Torah book and, and look at it with your own eyes, that's that's, that's ideal, because it's good to kind of look at. So, Breshis Baralokim. Look at the last three letters of these words. And you'll see, Breshis ends with the letter Taf, Bara ends with the letter Aleph, and Elokim ends with the letter Mem. So, we've got the letters Taf, Aleph, Mem. And if you rearrange those letters, it spells the word Emes, which is truth. So the Medrash says that God, from the very beginning of creation, put his stamp of truth on creation. Now, there's a very obvious question that can be asked about this, which is, if God is putting his stamp of truth on creation from the very beginning, why isn't he spelling it in the proper order? <laughs> Especially since we make such a big deal over the fact that the word emes is spelled a very particular way. Aleph, which is the first letter of the olive base, mem, which is the middle letter of the olive base, and tough, which is the last letter of the olive base. In other words, truth is all-encompassing. Right? So, so, so we put a premium on the proper spelling of this word. So we're saying that God put his stamp of truth in the beginning of creation, and yet it's spelled out of order. So what's going on with that? So again, we see another, again, on the macro scale. We were talking about it on the level of individuals, and we're going to get back to that in a moment, God willing. But now we're talking about it on the macro scale, how you see that the evolution of creation was something that's in the blueprint of the universe, because we say that the Torah is the blueprint of creation. You're looking at the blueprint right now. So now, remember... The first day of creation, that's, that's the beginning of the, the, the physical universe, right? And of course, God existed before the world was created. God created the world. But then we have the seventh day of creation. And the seventh day of creation, the Ramban says, correlates with the 7,000th year, which is the era of perfection, the era of Mashiach, right? So each one of those days also stands for a thousand years. And you can actually see some very interesting things if you correlate human history with the days of creation. And you see, by the way, one of the observations is that when it says that the human being was first created, that correlates with the return of the Jews to Eretz Yisrael in terms of the calendar. And it just it lays out like 
in phenomenal ways. You see all sorts of secrets of history and, and, and all sorts of things like that. But anyway, the, 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 the seventh thousandth year or the seventh day of creation, remember, the Messianic period is referred to as Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So it makes sense that the seventh day of creation correlates with the seven thousandth year, that, 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 that period of history, which is the Messianic period, which is the great Shabbos. Okay? So now that we've seen the first three words of the first day, let's look at the last three words of the seventh day. Right? So we're going from one end, the beginning, to the other end now. Okay? The last three words are, and you see there's a big white line there, so it's the three words there in, in the white line, um, and it's that's uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Okay? The last three words of chapter 2, verse 3. Bara Elohim Lasos. So let's look at the last three letters of those words. Bara, Aleph, Elohim Mem Lasos Tough. It spells out Emis, but it spells out Emis in the proper way. <laughs> in other words, here you see the goal and the evolution of creation itself. That truth is implanted in the world from the very beginning, but it's our job to reveal the truth that's been implanted in creation from the very beginning. And that's the destiny of the world. We're looking at the blueprint right now. We're looking at the fact that truth will be revealed, the oneness of God will be revealed for all of humanity, because we're all God's children, right? So that's where it's all heading. And our job is to be partners with God in order to reveal the oneness of God, the truth of God. Okay, so now we did the, we did the macro. Now let's get back to something which is inspiring and scary because it goes back to the individual level. Remember, a lot of people think that, you know, oh, you know, it's like really, like there are a lot of benefits to being quote-unquote religious, right? We, by the way, there is no word. We don't, Judaism is not a religion. You can define it as a religion, but Judaism doesn't understand itself to be a religion. We say, this is actually what's going on. This is like, this is what it is. We're just telling you what's going on. You know, it's not like we believe or hope or we came up with a cool idea and wouldn't it be great if this were really what was going on? You know, let's all believe that instead of this drab, you know, depressing thing. But that's not what we're doing here. That's not what we say. That's not our premise. Our premise is this is actually what's going on. This is reality. It's not religion. You know, religion is like a, this is not a religion. This is a description of what is. So, so back to the, back to the um, individual level, there is a, a uh, sort of a Yetzirah, like a, a, uh, a temptation, let's say, that, okay, I'm doing the mitzvahs, I'm, I'm, and, and now everything is in God's hands, right? But that's, that's not really what we're talking about in Judaism. What's going on is, we say, God, you're one, you run the entire world, it's, it's all in your hands, everything is in your hands. And God says, yes, absolutely, thank you, I love you. 
and then he puts the ball right back into our hands. <laughs> and it's sort of like, and he's like, okay, great, now do something. And it's sort of like, okay, and then we do something, and then we hand it back to God, and we go, okay, I did it, what it is. I, I did the event, I threw the party, I built the website, I made the flyer, I, whatever it is, I did the thing. It's all in your hands, God. And God says, fantastic, this is so good. And then he hands the ball back to us, and he goes, now it's all in your hands. <laughs> And so, so we, we, we have to understand that that's what God is never, never stops as, until Mashiach comes. Until Mashiach comes, and then we'll get our new marching orders. Until Mashiach comes, the ball never stops being handed back to us to do something more. It never stops. It never stops. And remember what the Kutzka Rebbe says. Basically, all of life is, is tests. You pass a test, you get a bigger test. See, we come from this coddled place where we think, I pass a test, now everyone should throw me a party, <laughs> right? What do you mean I get a bigger test? No, you've, 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 you've demonstrated that you're a creature of responsibility. Okay, so then God says, okay, God looks to you and goes, okay, good. So, so, so you're my person, right? So here, now do this job. And if we don't pass that test, then we get a smaller test. And if we don't pass that test, then we get a smaller test. And if we pass that test, then we get a bigger test. And if we pass that test, we get a bigger test. And it's like this ongoing throughout our entire life. It never stops. It's the Kutzka Rebbe. So this is a different mindset. It's a different mindset. But this is, again, what's going on. So now, again, let's get back to this kind of scary thought. That's scary, but sort of like you've got to take a moment to absorb it. God starts creation all over again with Noah, right, and his family. That's, that's pretty dramatic. It's pretty dramatic. He's got a world full of people. just starts again with Noah. God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, after the sin of the golden calf, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people and I'm going to start all over with you. And Moshe says, no, if that's the case, erase me from your book. And actually, God wanted him to give that answer. In fact, God prompted him to give that answer, helped him out. Okay. But it, it, it looked like, at least on the most superficial level, that he was ready to start over with Moshe. So you think, okay, well, he did it with Noah, he did it with Noah, he started all over again. Seemingly he was about to do it again with Moshe, although he didn't do it. So I guess he's not going to do it again. He's not going to start all over again with someone. But he starts all over again with Avraham Avinu. You just don't see the destruction of the world. Because there's a shift in terms of the game plan where all of a sudden you have the creation, so to speak. Now you can say... Our sources say that God bereshis, for the sake of the reishis, the first nation, the firstborn, which is the Jewish people, the entire world was created. So God had in mind the Jewish people even before the creation of the world. And this is all true. But nonetheless, right now you have the actual creation of the Jewish people, and you have this shifting around where you have one nation charged with the responsibility of being a light unto the nations. And you have this new beginning starting again 
with one person. Well, really two people, Abraham and Sarah. So this is, I say this is scary, but it's inspiring at the same time. You see that God is not shy about starting over again. <laughs> and, and he's not shy about charging Avraham in this case, right? But we have to understand the soul of Avraham was like enormous, right? Avraham was huge. With this task. So, now, I just want to make it real for us, and we're going to finish up. What I, what I want to suggest and, and, and show you now is that till this moment, God has not stopped creating and destroying worlds. That this process is going on till this second right now. And let me show you how that it's happening, okay? You see, it says that God created the world with ten utterances. Now, God doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have a body. He creates bodies. He makes bodies. Nonetheless, the rabbis have to give us some sort of framework so that we can wrap our minds around the agency of this. And by the way, one of the first questions everyone asks is, why did God create the world with ten utterances? He could have done it with one utterance. In fact, he could have done it with no utterances. So what does this mean that he created it with ten utterances as opposed to one utterance? So, so the best explanation, and I think it was Rav Hirsch who said this, um, I'll give my own example to explain his, his uh, thought, is, do you remember in math class when you would get a test in math and the teacher would say, show your work? Right? You couldn't just put down a number. You had to show how you worked it out. Right? Everyone remember that? So what, what I heard explained was, why did God create the world with ten, utter, ten, ten utterances? Is so that we could, so to speak, see God's work in terms of the steps leading to the creation of the world. That without the, revolution, the revelation of the steps leading to the creation of the world, and that's largely what science is doing, by the way, is giving us the steps that God used in order to create the world, right? Without that information, we'd have no way to wrap our minds around the fact that there's a world here and we're here and how did it happen, right? So all of these steps actually point us to God. It's not a challenge to God and his omnipotence. It's God giving us this extra help and information so that we can connect with him. Okay? So, so again, God created the world with ten utterances. Now, we know that human beings were created in the image of God, and that human beings were given this amazing power, which is unique to humans, which is this power of speech. And in fact, there's a, a famous um, onkelos in the Torah, which, which when it says that Adam was created with this, you know, with this living spirit, Onkelos translates that as the ability to talk, this talking spirit. In other words, the thing that gives us our unique life power is our, 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 our power of speech. So that's 
one of the main ways that we're created in the image of God, that we have this ability to talk, right? But not just to talk, to create. Because through speech, we create. And let me show you what I mean by that. And it's a favorite example of mine. If you imagine that you're in a room and there's like someone who's kind of homeless looking, kind of sitting in the corner or whatever it is. And imagine I come up to you and I tell you, hey, you see that person over there? That person is a multi-multi-millionaire, right? I promise you, I promise you, you're going to look at that person differently. That person's going to go from a homeless-looking person, which you thought a moment ago, to an eccentric genius, right? You're going to go, oh, that guy is like, oh, my goodness. I mean, what, this guy is like, you know, what does he have? He probably has like 10 PhDs, right? Right? And yet, look at him. He's just kind of sitting there in the corner. Right? So, so when I said that, when I used speech to say that, a moment ago, you lived in a world where that was a homeless person. Now you live in a world where that's an eccentric multimillionaire. And you're thinking, you know, maybe I'll talk to him a little bit. Maybe he'll fund my next project. Who knows? Like, maybe, you know. Something's going to happen here. But you literally live in a... You literally, not metaphorically, you literally live in a different world right now. Because the world you used to live in, that was a homeless person. The world you live in right now, that's a person you'd love to be friends with. Okay? So there are many examples of this. I'll tell you, oh, you see that guy over there? He's a lousy guy. Stay away from him. Or, I come up, now, now, before he was like this neutral guy, or he was this nice guy, or is this this guy who you had a relationship with. Now, all of a sudden, it's, it's some, he's someone to be avoided. That's literally a different world that you now live in. Before he was someone who was like a good person, now he's someone who's a bad person. And you're going to make decisions where you're going to go, who you're going to talk to. You're going to conduct yourself differently based on that new reality. Because perception creates reality. And you create perception through speech. And now reality changes. So what I'm trying to tell you is, just like God created the world with ten utterances, and the world came into being, when we speak, we're creating worlds. And we're destroying worlds. Right? That guy might be a good guy. Now I'm telling you he's a bad guy. You know what? He might be a good guy. Now it's like he's now living in a world where he's now a bad guy, but he's a good guy. It's a different world that he's living in right now. So you destroy worlds through speech, and you create new worlds through speech. Now imagine I tell you something which is like changes the way you look at something, or all of a sudden you have hope when you didn't have hope. Right? Now you're living in a new world, a world with hope. And we have that ability to give that act of creation to other people. Where they're living, they used to be living in broken worlds. But now they hear this new thing, now they're living in a world of hope, a world of oneness. So this act of destroying and creating many worlds is going on to this moment. And God should bless us that we should be among the creators 
not the destroyers. And to the extent that we're the destroyers, we should be the destroyers like Avraham Avinu was a destroyer. As the Medrash says when he was like five years old, right? His father owned an idol shop. Can you imagine anything more picture perfect? That his father's making idols. And his father asks him to watch the shop. And when his father leaves, Avraham Avinu, who, who understands the oneness of God, takes an axe and he breaks all of the idols except the biggest one and he puts the axe like in the hand, so to speak, you know, of that idol. And the father comes back. His business has been destroyed. He says, what happened? He said, Dad, the, the idols got into a big fight and the biggest idol smashed all the other idols. And his father says, what are you talking about? They can't move. They can't speak. They can't do anything. And Avraham Avinu says to his father, then why do you pray to them? Right? Like, wow. So, so we should be destroyers of worlds to the extent that that means that we're destroying falsehood. Amen and creators of worlds to the extent that that means revealing the truth that's there. Remember, again, Breshis Baralukim. Truth is there, but it's out of order. Right? Baralukim Lasos. All of a sudden, it's revealed. Truth is revealed in its proper order. We've done our job. We've been partners with God to create, to create that world that He intended to create from the very beginning. Right? Okay. Here are some questions and answers. So, um, when, when we're in class and, we're, and you're talking, yeah. describing these concepts, it's very, uh, you, get, you get very fired up, you know, and then like, my mind starts shifting. Yeah. I'm like, yes, I see this all, this is amazing. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm on fire, Shem is yeah. you know, but um, sometimes uh, during the week when. Yeah. You know, wake up, maybe things aren't as clear, and you start right. hearing this like very inter- powerful internal voice of yes. negativity that's, right. that's constantly threading yes. together these false right. w- worlds yes. of illusion that you know that they're not um, they're not healthy, they're not positive. And, yes. Um, I guess my question is: Is it helpful to talk to Hashem directly about yes. that experience? Yes, for or sure. Or is that reinforcing those worlds? You know, or what's uh, no. No, no, you, you got to, you know, like Rabbi Nachman says, you got to talk to God like he's your best friend, right? And, you know, you know, you have to keep in mind he's also the king, but at the same time, he's your best friend. And, and, and you pour your heart out to God. And you also have to, um, you know, like one of the kind of sort of bittersweet, kind of a little bit heartbreaking moments, memories of my father is after my mother was nifter, Allah Vashalom. Um, my dad, I, I asked my dad, you know, how you doing? And he said, he said, well, he says, I'm a psychologist, so I know the right things to say to myself. Mm. You know? And it was beautiful because he knew what to say to himself. It was also heartbreaking that he had to say something to himself. So we have to know what to say to ourselves. We have to, to, to develop that, that internal uh, Rebbe to, to not just counteract our Yetzirah, our negative side, but to in, in, embolden 
and empower our Yetzir Tov, our positive side. And one of the ways to do that is to give it more responsibility, to be able to find those phrases which are most helpful to, to you individually. And on some level, everyone's got to arrive at those phrases by themselves. But I have, at the most challenging times in my life, had to say, okay, what is, what, what am I going to tell myself? In other words, you, you actually can't just wait for something good to happen in terms of that positive side of yourself at that moment. You have to write that phrase or those phrases and you have to have them ready for yourself in order to be able to tell yourself that so that you have an answer to the negativity when it comes. And I can tell you that one of the things, and it's this Parsha, Parsha's Lech Lecha, that I heard in the name of the Ger Rebbe, which was that Lech Lecha means basically keep going, right? That was when Avram uh, was told by God, go to Israel and, you know, just basically leave everything behind and just go to Israel, you know? And, and the Ger Rebbe says that God didn't just say that to Avraham Avinu, he said that to every Jew for all time, don't stop moving, right? And I know that there was a time in my life where it's sort of like, I just, I was just, just so shut down. Every, I was just shut down on a regular basis. And I would just tell myself, don't stop, don't stop moving, don't stop, don't stop. And I'd force myself to stand up and walk to the next thing or whatever it was, you know? And every every person will have those things which are the helpful phrases. But you have to, you know, they say uh, one of the mitzvahs in the Torah is that when you go out to war, not to be afraid. So if you think about human nature, not that I've ever been to war, but I can imagine at least this much. If I'm in the middle of a battle and people are shooting and who knows, maybe people are dying around me. Who knows, right? You're telling me I have a, oh wait, I have a mitzvah not to be afraid? Like, how can you possibly keep that mitzvah? And the answer that I heard from Rabbi Grossman was, you have to prepare yourself before you go into battle. If you prepare yourself before you go into battle, then you at least have a shot while you're in the middle of the battle. Right? But if you're just waiting in the middle of the battle to summon that sort of level of, um, you know, uh, composure, good luck. So, 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 so work on those phrases. Ask yourself, what is the most reassuring things that I can tell myself? Empower your Yetzer Tov. And then also, remember, structure, like, 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 I was told that Developing, all of life is about developing good habits, right? So structure is really healthy. Like I can tell you that going to morning minion is really healthy because it gets you out of bed, you know? I mean, I, I get up 5.30 in the morning, 5.40 in the morning. If you knew me in college or the years <laughs> after college, the idea, I mean, I wasn't even keeping anything, really. That this guy would get up at 5.30 or 5.40 in the morning to go to Minion? 
what? You're talking about someone else. You're not talking about me. But I do that. And I've been doing that for years. And I can tell you that, especially if you have like a powerful imagination, right? You need order in your schedule. Because otherwise, you're going to be, you're going to be rolled over like a, like a bowling pit. You know, and your mind is, is going to be like a jujitsu thing. It's going to be used against you. So, so um, that's, that's, that's my advice. Yeah.